When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Of all the foods that could be bad, I think sushi is the worst thing to be bad. So I want to hear from you what the worst sushi you've ever had was. Oh, my God. That's a great question. I know I know off the top of my head where this is. This was in Beaumont, Texas, and I got an unagi roll from a uh, restaurant down there late at night. And I remember this place being close to like a country western bar. But I remember getting a roll from there, taking it home. And um, in my inebriated late night shenanigans, eating that and the next day had food poisoning. <laughs> Wait, so it wasn't a combination country western bar sushi bar because that would have been I mean, there might really have... awful. <laughs> That's in my brain, considering how violently I was throwing up the next day. I probably think, you know, I've I've conflated the two. I'm pretty sure it was one place that gave me both of those experiences. <laughs> <laughs> what if, What about you? What's what's the worst that you've had? I was living in Mexico, in Puerto Vallarta. Gosh, you know, Mexican sushi is its own animal and most of it is deep fried and they love unagi sauce at Mexican sushi bars, like that sort of, um, you know, caramely thick sauce um, that people tend to glaze unagi with. Yeah. I think that was the worst. Um, there was like jalapenos in it and ham Ooh, and uh, oh my God. raw oh, wow. fish. It was this whole thing. But I ordered it just because I wanted to know, you know? Yeah, that's a... Uh, oh, curiosity got the best of you. Yeah, it definitely killed this cat. <laughs> With that said, hello, people. You're listening to the Extra Spicy Podcast. I am Justin Phillips. And I'm Soleil Ho. Today, we're talking to Karen Pynchon, a food systems writer whose piece on international eel smuggling for the counter really screwed with our heads. This is a billion dollar industry that nobody knows about. Mm. And nobody knows about it because people in the industry don't want anyone to know about it. We're diving into why eels are smuggled in suitcases, why baby eels, known as glass eels or elvers, are worth hundreds to thousands of dollars per pound, and whether there's a sustainable way to consume this fish. Almost every single eel that's eaten in America right now was likely caught in the wild, a lot of them caught in the wild in America, then sent on airplanes to China or Taiwan or Korea, raised to adulthood, made into unagi, and then flown back here and then consumed here. I had no idea about any of this, and it is it is truly, truly fascinating. It is. We're both now infected with eel brain worms. And, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I'll be honest, I haven't eaten a single eel since I read that story. I am so spooked, and I don't want anyone to die. And I'm really excited we're diving into this today. So stay tuned. Well, Karen, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's great to be on with you guys. What is a food systems writer? So I guess the way I see it is that I, I kind of was doing the job before it was a job. Mostly, I think I was just a pain in the ass for my editors <laughs> that I would come in with a story that that could be really simple and kind of from zero to 60, I would make it really complicated really quickly. <laughs> um, <laughs> I would 
you know, yes, it's a story about beer, but it's also a story about manufacturing and it's also a story about demand. And, and I think it came, I grew up working on my grandfather's apple farm in kind of rural Canada and always kind of had this nuanced understanding of the work and the labor and the economics that it took to bring food into people's homes. And so when I started working as a journalist, I think I just naturally gravitated towards seeing it as more than just one type of story, one one story, I guess. Oh, okay. So it's sort of like, and I, I totally get this too, where it's, it's like you can see the matrix. <laughs> yes. It's like you're in the matrix. It's like you're like, you've taken the pill. And now the the real challenge is like showing everyone else that the matrix is there, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. I mean, yeah. you did that for me and Justin with your amazing investigation into eels. I just... Thank you. Oh, my God. I don't know how you feel currently, Justin, but like when I read it, I was just like, oh, my God, I can't eat eels. I can't. Like there's just there was just too much I didn't know. And... Knowing that you don't know, I think, is the most disturbing thing. And I think that is there what journalism does so well, right? Yes, ab- that, that is a fantastic way to put it. And when we were planning this out and we were reading your work, even in that window, like that very brief window that we discussed it, we also became obsessed. Because like she said, <laughs> it, was, it was so much that we didn't know. And I was enthralled the entire time. But for people that might be unfamiliar, can you talk about your investigation? And, you know, simply like, what's the deal with eels right now? I guess for me, it started five years ago. I was reporting a magazine piece up here in Canada on the fight over eel. And there, it had almost nothing to do with with Japan or with China. It had to do with a conflict between indigenous nations who have spearfished eel for millennia and were, were trying to protect the species and pass down those foodways to their children and white commercial fishers who wanted to catch as many baby eels as they could and sell those to Asian fish farms. And then there on those fish farms, they're grown into adult eels. They're kind of grown bigger the way that fish farming works. And then they're turned into unagi. So I, I kind of brushed the surface of the story five years ago and it quickly became apparent that there was so much more to this story that it involved wildlife crime, it involved the commodification of seafood, and I guess ultimately the kind of the nature of capitalism and how it mm. flattens these living creatures into widgets, right? That can be more easily bought and sold. Oh my gosh. I mean the image of someone carrying a bunch of baby eels in a luggage. Oh my God. Stuck with me. Like literally in a suitcase. Right. Like, oh my God. Yes. And this is the wild thing is that they evolved in this amazing way to breathe through their skin so they can make it these like long overland journeys when they're migrating, you know, when they're, they're andronomous fish. And so they essentially breed in the Sargasso Sea, the American eel, at least these eels breed in this giant ball underwater it's like this orgy of eels (laughs) then they i know such a mental picture and then the baby eels are essentially born as larvae they're pushed up against the eastern atlantic coast 
all the way from Greenland to Venezuela. So over a huge geographic range, even though it's called the American eel. Right. Um, and then they swim up rivers. Some of them will make it all the way up into freshwater rivers. If they can get up past the dams, right. This like mass damming of North American rivers. And then eventually when it's time for them to breathe, they then need to make it down back to the Sargasso. And so that same adaptation that makes it possible for them to migrate these huge distances is also the same thing that allows them to be smuggled so effectively. Wow. Yeah. One thing I want to add to this, like uh, in the process of doing this investigation where people are like, well, why eels? Like, did it did it take much <laughs> back and forth to get this, you know, rolling or, you know, or once you explain it to people, like why it's interesting to you, did it... Uh, was it easy? Like, I, I'm really curious about that process. Yeah, it was always a really hard sell because eels aren't, aren't at least to Westerners, they're not sexy, right? They're not, it's not tuna. Yeah. It's not, you know, it's not this like glamorous thing, at least as far as the West is concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think people see it as kind of a frill, Right. You you go to your local sushi place, you grab an ununagi roll. You're not really thinking of the providence of that of that eel, Mm. of that animal. Mm. And so when I would talk to editors, they would say, well, like, why does it even matter? And the number one thing that usually got them was this is a billion dollar industry that nobody knows about. Mm. And nobody knows about it because people in the industry don't want anyone to know about it. You know, they, they, they benefit from, from lack of oversight. They benefit from law enforcement, not knowing how they move these creatures around the world. Yeah. And if that doesn't get them, then what does is the idea that almost every single eel that's eaten in America right now was likely caught in the wild, a lot of them caught in the wild in America, then sent on airplanes to China or Taiwan or Korea, raised to adulthood, then made into unagi and then flown back here and then consumed here. And like these eels will travel farther than most humans will in their lifetimes. (laughs) Right. Yeah. It's like if the big money the mystery and the crime element don't pique your interest. The logistics of it itself is just mind blowing. Yes. It's like, what more do you need from me? (laughs) Please. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And it's such a, you know, you're right. It's such a banal thing. I could walk down to my local Safeway and probably find some eel sushi in the like creepy little sushi counter and not even think about it. And it's, it, it almost belies the fact that it is a billion dollar industry. The fact that you can just pick up eels anywhere, essentially. Uh, but I mean, how much it, we don't even have a conception of how much these eels are worth. Mm, mm. No. And again, that's a function of capitalism, right? Because it, it disconnects the value of the fish from the kind its value in the ecosystem, its value culturally in communities it it kind of decenters the function of it. It takes a living creature and just turns it into like a a thing, and and I guess working on this story, like 
let's be honest, like I'm a white woman and my name is Karen. (laughs) So like, I have to be very careful given the privilege I have and the blind spots I have. I have to be so careful about my, my positionality in these stories, Mm -hmm. kind of how I, how I frame who is we, who is them. And a good example would be like with eels, there's always this yuck factor is it very often editors would say like, Ooh, eels, <laughs> you know, and I would have to push back on that and say like, like yucky for whom exactly. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, like who finds them yucky in Japan, they're revered. Um, when I did my reporting trip there, this part got cut out of the story for length, but I visited a factory where their main product was a cookie called unagi pie. And it was a delicious eel flavored cookie. Mm. It was like a cookie where they brushed on this like sugar eel sauce. And they had this adorable mascot who wore like an eel as a bandana. And, you know, in Japan, they have this real sense of like celebrating this, this creature and same in, in indigenous communities. So I think a lot of it is always approaching a story with a sense, with a bigger sense of we and a bigger sense of, of who's benefiting and who's hurting as this creature disappears, right, from, from our oceans. Right. I mean, I noticed, too, in a lot of coverage of, I mean, like environmentalist, conservationist coverage of, let's say, like dolphin killings and like whales slaughtering and harvesting in places like Japan. And a lot of it is done by like, you know, Western uh, conservationists and activists. And like there is certainly like a binary that's set from the get go of like we're going to save these poor helpless creatures from these like inscrutable Asians. We don't know why they do this. Right. Like and it's Mm. um, Mm -hmm. it seems like for coverage of a story like this, like that would be a very easy trope to to play with. Yeah, absolutely. And that was something my editors were very uh, mindful of. It was, and I'll, like, think about I, like something like Seaspiracy, right? It's, it's, that was a question is like, are we framing this as, you know, I do touch on the role of the Yakuza in the formation of the Japanese aquaculture industry And, you know, that's a situation where the existence of the Yakuza in a lot of these smaller Japanese towns, it predated that country's fishing legislation around eels. And so a lot of the role of these kind of organized crime groups was baked into the nature of of the industry there. And so you have to be really, I, I made an effort to be really careful to say, to kind of interrogate that framing around, you know, this is not, this is not, you know, Japanese diners are not the bad guys for consuming 70% of the world's unagi. You know, they're, they're, they're consumers. They, they value this thing. They're paying money for this thing. Just as, you know, Chinese aquaculture farms are not the bad guy because they're producing 80% of the world's unagi, right? These are all just, you know, countries and people and business people doing their best in this like insanely globalized world of ours. Um, but again, it's, it's not, yeah, it's just, 
it drives me crazy when other white reporters try to frame this as when they other Mm. like so many people in like a single, they can do it with a single sentence. And I think, luckily I think food reporting is changing. Um, maybe not as quickly Mm. as it should be. Um, but I think, I think slowly but surely we're getting there. You're listening to the extra spicy podcast. We'll be right back after a quick break. You can support this podcast and the newsroom that creates it by signing up for a San Francisco Chronicle membership at sfchronicle.com slash pod. You're listening to the Extra Spicy Podcast. We're back with Karen Pynchon. A glass eel is essentially, imagine like like a golf tea-sized piece of jello, like a long and skinny, like gelatinous creature. Mm. And that is a glass eel. When it gets a little bit bigger, which is usually when it arrives on the coast of Maine, at that point, it's a little bit bigger it's a little bit darker and that's called an elver. And then when they reach maturity, then they're silver eels. And this is a wild story, but they actually lose their stomachs. Their stomach just like completely atrophies inside their body because they don't need it because they're headed towards the Sargasso Sea and are, they're eventually just going to like spawn in this giant ball orgy and then die. Scientists have not figured out how to breed them in captivity, the way that we do with, say, salmon or even tuna. I know that there have been some kind of advances in breeding bluefin tuna in captivity. Yield just won't do it mm. because biologically they're looking for this, the sargasso. Like they're looking for this particular blend of darkness and ocean currents and salinity. And so the only way to make unagi is to somehow get a baby eel for a long time. That main industry was in Japan where they, the, you know, Japanese fishers would catch these baby glass eels. They would put them into aquaculture farms. Uh, some of the earliest aquaculture was in Japan. It was in the late 1800s. And, but unfortunately, eventually those eels kind of got wiped out. And so then that pushed a lot of the trade to another species in Europe. And then, it started to get wiped out there and then it came to North America and the prices just skyrocketed. So for instance, like a pound at the peak is selling for between 2000 and $2,500 just for a pound. Like you could just fill your hands and it was like, it would just be just quick money. Right. So are there there's yeah. probably like thousands of glass eels in a pound too, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And this is the really interesting thing, looking at some of the legal cases that are being brought against some of the poachers is that the poachers are saying, well, you know, it was only X amount of value. You know, it was only X number of eels. But the prosecutors very often do the math and figure out, you know, yes, it's only worth maybe two hundred and twenty thousand dollars now. But once you grow those to full size and import them back into North America, they could be worth $20 million. Mm. Mm, wow. They're essentially like seeds. A great way to think of them would uh, be as seeds. Mm. And then they're being taken to you know farms, grown to full size, and then sold as, as 
as the, as the product. Right. Mm -hmm. But the problem when telling the story is like, that's a lot of details (laughs) to, you know, that's a lot of nuance, um, to get into the issue of like, should we be eating this fish? Right. And so with tuna, there are often labels on the cans that speak to their sustainability. Is there anything like that for eels? Is there any like quick way of knowing or are we just all going to be in the Mm. dark? That's like a good news, bad news situation. Uh, Japanese eel does need to be labeled. And so if you're in Japan, you're looking for eel, it has to be on that package. We don't have the same thing here in North America because, you know, there's no consumer pressure to do that. Um, Now it's possible in a lot of the particularly higher end sushi restaurants, you know, the chefs there may have a really good sense of, of where their eel is coming from. I know I was in Boston during the seafood show a couple years ago and I went to a great little spot and you know, the, the chefs are always generally pretty busy, right? They don't want, in a lot of cases, if they're slammed at the line, they don't want to have to talk about, you know, where did, does your unagi come from? But the chef was great and he took me into the back room and he kind of, we took apart the package and you could kind of see that it it was originally from China. Um, and a lot of the companies in China, you know, they don't have the same labeling laws. And so, you know, that could have been a European eel that was smuggled. It could have been an eel that was legally obtained from the States. Right. So one of the challenges is, is, is the challenge of labeling. Mm, Right. I mean, so (laughs) I'm just getting more and more sad about it as we talk. Um, is there, is there an ethical eel out there? Yeah, so that is the good news. Okay. So yes, yes, there is. And you can order it online. Oh. Yeah. Um, so I spent some time uh, for this piece for the counter with, her name is Sarah Rademacher, and she became one of these people who is obsessed with eels, which as I realized in the course of reporting the story, I had inadvertently become one of those people. Oh, no, no, um, we're those people too now. So. Yes, yes, don't, don't worry. Yeah. Okay, great. We, we can form a support group. Um, and she she's kind of cagey at, you know, she has this new business. It has a lot of kind of scientific secrets in terms of how she's growing her eels to full size. One of the kind of dark secrets of the eel industry is that the female eels grow much, much bigger than the males. But when eels are under stress, they turn, they're, they're more likely to turn into male eels. This one of these fish that's Mm. kind of gender fluid, Mm. it can kind of, it can be feminized or with, with hormones that a, a lot of farms in China, they'll actually give the eels, um, female hormones, to turn them into female eels so they get bigger. And so this woman in Maine, her name's Sarah, she has all these kind of proprietary technological stuff that she does to, to, to raise healthy eels, to keep them growing, to keep them kind of happy and healthy. And I wasn't allowed to take any pictures inside her, her lab in Maine, but it was amazing to see these, these eels that she had bought at market value from Maine fishers. She was growing them in these tanks 
um, to adulthood. And at the time when I interviewed her, she wasn't selling, she was only selling kind of wholesale to restaurants. Um, but in the, in the period since the story ran, she's kind of relaunched this whole online store. It's a way, it is an ethical way to buy eel, but it's not cheap. Right. How much, how much is her eel? Right now it looks like you can get four ounce smoked eel fillets for $20. Mm. And they say on their website that the last time they put them online, they sold out. Jeez. So clearly there is demand. You know, I was sitting here thinking about um, how like, you know, with time uh, and reporting and, you know, people doing the work like you do, but specifically about like coffee or chocolate, consumers have had, you know, been thinking deeply about, uh, you know, the ethics around it, how it's sourced, you know, what violations might be involved with it. And they think mm -hmm. about it. And granted, you know, I think prevalence has to do with a lot of it, like the prevalence of consumption, like people have coffee and chocolate pretty often. But how do you get consumers to be invested in asking questions about eel sourcing? You know, like, it, does it feel like an uphill battle to get consumers to care about this in, the, in a similar way as they do about like, maybe where they get their coffee or chocolate? It is a challenge. But it's clearly one that I decided to take on because there, listen, there's so many other things that are more important, right? Like existential things in people's lives, like food insecurity, you know, like there's, you know, labor problems in the sushi industry. You know, there's, there's so many things that we should worry about, but for me, at a really fundamental level, eels are fascinating. And people who learn about eels kind of fall into this world. And if falling into that world doesn't make you care about our ecosystems and the food systems where these animals are coming from, I don't know what will, right? You need to inspire that kind of passion and that kind of interest if you can see these animals for the value that they have, it's kind of this portal into seeing all the creatures in the ocean for the value that they have. And, and then seeing all these ecosystems for the value that they have and all the people who rely on these creatures for kind of their own right to exist and to thrive. And so I guess my goal was to, to try to make eel people out of every single person who read this story, right? Mm. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it worked on us. So <laughs> I think, I mean, it's just an amazing story. And of course, we will link to it in our podcast article and hopefully make some eel people out of our listeners too. That would be amazing. And what's funny is that now people send me all this eel knowledge and studies and stories. And it's, it's kind of a you know, I will, eels will always have a very big place in my heart, but I think the eel phase of my life may be over. <laughs> I think I think it's time for me to move on. Well, you're working That's... on a book now, right? <laughs> yeah, um, I ended up when I was in Tokyo doing some uh, reporting for a book that I um, at the time it was just a proposal, but now I have a book deal to work on this book about tuna. Um, and during the pandemic, I've been doing a lot of reporting on indigenous knowledge and, um, 
how it, that interacts with, uh, science and food systems. Um, and so, you know, eels, which is definitely a topic that eels brought me to, but now there's, there's, there's bigger fish to fry, I guess, out there. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Wow. I'm just, I'm just still coming to grips, Karen, with you saying the eel phase of your life is over with. You pulled us into this world and now, now you're going to exit. <laughs> you're going to leave happening? us here. I know. Devastated. <laughs> right. And I have one last question. This is a broader one, but I'm so curious as to what drives you towards pursuing stories about marine sustainability. Like what, like why is that sort of the bee in your bonnet? So when you look at the ocean, right, it's like this, it's, it's this line on the horizon, right? And under that line is contained like these multitudes, right? These creatures, these ecosystems, these kind of, it's, there's something so fundamental about the ocean itself. And then you look at how we've treated the ocean as this kind of bottomless resource, this thing to be exploited, you know, it was the basis for like colonialism in so many places, right? It's like, look at this bounty, this bounty should be ours, let's claim it. And there's something for me so broken about viewing the ocean as like this place of bottomless resources that we deserve to, to wipe out, you know? And so in learning more about the science that's happening in the ocean and learning more about these creatures, I guess I've taken it on as my life's work to kind of speak for these, these people whose work might never be seen to these animals who like, who people might never encounter in their lives, right? Like someone from the Midwest might never have a chance to you know, stare at an eel, like face to face. But I promise you, if you have a chance to look at an eel face to face, that eel is looking at you. That eel knows you are there. And I'm not saying we shouldn't eat eel, but I'm saying that there are these ideas of reciprocity that I think are really valuable, that, that it is, it is, it can be both something that we eat and something that we value, you know, those two things aren't mutually exclusive. And so I always try to bring that forward in, in the journalism I do is that, that it's a relationship and in order for a thing to be a relationship, it has to go both ways. You know, it has to get something out of it. It's not just us consuming. I think that's really poignant. And, you know, it reminds me of the fact that when I die, I want my body to be thrown into a tide pool. So I feel confirmed in that desire. Great. Thank you. That's amazing. Well, and one anecdote from my book that I can share is that the fisherman who I'm writing about, his name is Al. um, When he died, his widow took a boat out to his favorite fishing spot and dropped his ashes and a yellow rose wreath into the water. And I just think of this idea of this yellow wreath kind of floating down to the bottom of the ocean where a fisherman spent, you know, many thousands of hours of his life. And I think if we can all feel connected to the sea in that way, you know, maybe we have a shot at actually protecting it. 
Mm. I think that's brilliant. Thank you so much for talking with us. Yeah, thank you, Karen. This is great. And that's all we have for today. Thank you to Karen Pynchon for joining us and to Taya Francesca Price for producing and editing this episode. You can find Karen's story on Eels on the Counter and find her latest piece on Vox. It's all about using indigenous memory to save two species of Dungeness crab and yellow rockfish. Her Twitter handle, by the way, is at Karen Pynchon, P-I-N-C-H-I-N. If you're enjoying Extra Spicy, please share it with a friend and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. 